Um, good to be with you. We are um, continuing our series in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, and today we're reading from chapter 10, verse uh, 14. But before I um, read, let me, let me just ask you simply, do you find it hard to live God-glorifying lives in our culture and in our society? Do you ever think it would be so much easier to live a faithful, consistent Christian life if you work for the church instead of for a secular company? Do you ever look in envy on um, other Christian families who are all Christians and think it would be so much easier for me if I lived in a completely Christian family? Do you ever find the world we're living in is becoming increasingly foreign with radical new values and beliefs that promote uh, ways of life that were until fairly recently regarded as aberrant and unhealthy. And do you find that your own Christian beliefs and values are increasingly invite um, uh, a measure of opposition and label you as a social misfit. If that's the case, then um, this passage is just written for you. Of course, it wasn't just written for you. It was written for the Corinthians 2,000 years ago who were living in a world that was just steeped with idolatry that impacted them in every area of their lives in making a living and in their social engagements. Here, in this passage, the focus is much more on social engagements with people, but it did affect every area of life. Trade guilds were steeped in idolatry. Um, teachers would use, have to use textbooks that told stories of pagan gods and called on the pupils to celebrate pagan festivals. Masons might be required to build a pagan temple, um, tailors to um, uh, sew the robes of a heathen priest. You couldn't avoid idolatry in that world. Now, we don't live in a world like that, but we do live in a world that has so idolized freedom that we are in the midst of a cultural revolution that is increasingly intolerant of any who question whether what they celebrate is truly wholesome and really does bring freedom. And what you can never do in this world, you can, you can against nature engage in sexual practice, providing all parties are consensual, and against biological fact, you can declare yourself, well, I could declare myself to be a five-foot-three a Chinese woman, and you would have to endorse my delusion, but what you can never do is voice any contrary opinion without being censored or even sacked from your company. Now, I'm not going to address those issues uh, directly today. It'd be inappropriate. I'm a visiting preacher, and I can't see you face to face, and I don't know many of you personally. It's much better left to your leaders. But I'm simply suggesting that the world they lived in that was steeped in idolatry is not so alien from the world in which we live in. 
So here is, here is our reading, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So they're living in this world um, steeped with idolatry, and the presenting issue for them, as we have seen, is eating food sacrificed to idols, um, which is something very, very difficult to avoid um, within their culture. And Paul presents three distinct locations where food sacrificed to idols could be eaten. So number one was pagan temples, which, um, as Richard explained two or three weeks ago, were the normal locations for social gatherings, a bit like going to a restaurant or a pub or something like that. But invitations would have been made to dine at the table of that god. And the meal would begin with a liquid offering and prayer to that God. Similarly, business deals would often be cemented in pagan temples with a sacrifice to the God which bound you 
in that business partnership. So that was one location. Second place, home, your own home, where um, you had um, bought meat from the marketplace, would, which would have inevitably have been sacrificed to an idol. And the third, um, the home of an unbelieving friend hosting a social gathering. Now, um, not surprisingly, for those of you who've been uh, studying Corinthians for a long time, there were, there were different schools of thought within the Church of Corinth. Um, I say not surprisingly because um, they seemed to divide over every single issue um, there was. Um, in chapter 8, we met those who championed the knowledge they'd received in the gospel that an idol is nothing in the world, and who were therefore convinced that they were absolutely immune from any danger of idolatry. They also championed their freedom in Christ, as we saw in chapter 9. So they were no longer bound by religious um, taboos and restrictions, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, um, that sort of thing. Now, I, I can't prove this, but I suspect, I suspect it's likely that that faction was largely represented by the few in Corinth who by birth or upbringing or education or business were well connected with the influential in society and who would therefore more naturally be invited to social occasions at heathen feasts and be expected to enter into business partnerships, that sort of thing. And their rejection of those invitations would cause great misunderstanding. Um, and so there's enormous pressure on them to compromise, to participate in body, if not in spirit. So maybe some of you might remember Naaman, the Syrian general who was healed by Elisha. Sorry, just having a battle with a microphone that um, died on me. Thank you. Um, and you, remain, you may remember that he said uh, to Elisha, may, may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I bow there also. When I bow, bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha said, go in peace. Perhaps that's not unlike the situation where you attend the funeral of a Muslim or Hindu friend or colleague. Except um, the knowledge of the knowledgeable in Corinthians, who those who champion their freedoms appears to be not one of, can I participate in body but not in spirit, with fear and trembling, but with the utter conviction that they were absolutely immune from idolatry. So that's one, one side of that. We have knowledge. We have freedom. On the, on the other side, there are those who 
they would have regarded as having weak consciences and didn't have that same assurance and freedom. And far from being brought into liberty by the assertions of the strong were in danger of being led into sin. So Richard highlighted that, chapter 8, eight verse 11. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is in danger of being destroyed by your knowledge. So that, that, that's, that's the presenting issue. And this is issue that challenged the unity of the church and its holiness in terms of its separation from the world in order to be devoted to God. How were they to live in unity and love within the church? And how were they to live for God in holiness and faithfulness in their engagement with the world? So um, Paul gives them two great principles to live by. Number one, flee from idolatry. Chapter 10, verse 14. Flee from idolatry. Um, now back in chapter 8, verse 4, um, as I, I've mentioned, he said, um, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But in saying that, in saying that we, we know an idol is nothing at all in the world, that does not mean that idolatrous worship is merely an empty ritual. Eating and drinking is participation. As he says, verse 15, chapter 10, verse 15, with the Lord's Supper, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Uh, in other words, there may be much more to communion than many of us realize. For Paul, communion is not just a memorial or a symbol by which we remember Christ died for us. It does something to us. It actually acts to bring the church together, to unite us with Christ and to unite us with one another. It is, says Paul, a participation in the body and blood of Christ. We are one because we participate in one loaf. So that we share one cup of blessing, that we share one loaf, is much more than an illustration of our unity. Verse 16, he says, in the Lord's Supper, Christ is not just represented to us in the cup and in the loaf. He is presented to us. Communion is not just a remembrance. 
It is a participation. It is the means by which we are made one with him and with each other in his body. And Paul is saying that is true for all sacrificial meals. It was the same with the people of Israel, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. They were a means by which Israel could participate in the sacrifice of the altar and have fellowship with God. So eating a meal in an idol temple that is incorporated into the worship of an idol is no different. It is not an empty ritual. It is a real participation with the idol, at least the satanic delusion that lies behind that. So verse 19, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, Paul there is quoting from um, Deuteronomy chapter 32, a song that Moses taught Israel uh, to learn by heart and to sing. And it was a song that predicted how they would behave once they entered into the promised land and began to prosper. So Deuteronomy 32 verse 15, he says, Israel grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation. Children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. And that is precisely the danger the strong in Corinth are in and likely to lead the church as a whole into. That's why, um, you know, last week Paul was... Um, reminding um, the, the Corinthians of their forefathers in the wilderness. Israel that had just come out of Egypt and had um, all these spiritual blessings. Um, uh, verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And yet, despite all those privileges, they entered into participation with false gods and suffered the consequences. Uh, and these proud Corinthians had a lot more in common 
with their forefathers, the Israelites, in the wilderness than they might have supposed. And they were in danger of doing the same thing. You think you are strong, says Paul, that you can eat the sacrificial sacrifices of idolatry with impunity? Are you stronger than God? Are you trying to arouse him to jealousy and judgment as Israel did? Back in, uh, back in chapter 6, um, Paul warned them about um, taking their bodies, which were united to Christ, and joining them to a prostitute. Um, now he's warning those who are united to Christ in the Lord's Supper and drink the cup of the Lord against also uniting themselves um, with demons uh, by eating at sacrificial tables offered where sacrifices are offered to demons and um, drinking the cup of demons. What about us? How are we to flee idolatry? Um, we could apply it to uh, ourselves personally. Things we are tempted to give inordinate affection and attachment to. Uh, so you think of Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So um, take your business or your work or your opportunity for promotion. You can serve God in your business and work well in your business. But can you compromise your relationship to God in order to further your prospects and still serve God? Or take your name, your reputation, your family. You can serve God in your family and in your community but can you compromise your relationship to God in order to enhance your reputation, your respect, your standing, and still serve God? So we could apply it to ourselves just um, how it would apply to us individually in the things we are loving too much and the things we are in danger of being mastered by. Or we could apply it more widely with respect to living in a culture that idolizes freedom and where global companies outdo one another in showing how woke they are. Um, back in chapter 5, um, Paul said, um, chapter 5, verse um, 9 and 10, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So he's not saying you can't have friendships with people like that. You can't, it's not saying you can't work with people who have very different values from you. And indeed, in our, in our society, it would be almost impossible to avoid purchasing the products of companies who are keen to show how tolerant they are or working for an organization endorses values that are not Christian. 
But there is a fellowship, a partnership with those who promote these values that is utterly inappropriate for the people of God. And some churches are entering into such partnerships and promoting such values. As, as Paul will say in, in his second letter, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what right, do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friend, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So that is his first principle. Flee idolatry. Flee the things that would bind you in a partnership um, that would be offensive to God. Second principle, chapter 10, verse 24, and we've only got two. Nobody should seek his own good. Nobody should seek his own advantage, but the good or the advantage of others. So uh, two points is very, very simple, really. Um, the first commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you will flee from idolatry. Second commandment, Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will seek the good, the advantage of your neighbor. And Paul is particularly addressing this to those who think their freedom, their rights, trump every other concern. Chapter 10, verse 23, everything is permissible. That's, that's the... Uh, Corinthians motto or the motto of the strong uh, chapter 6 they said everything is permissible um, and applied it to sexual immorality Paul says everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial everything is permissible they say but not everything is constructive so um, here on this second principle, love your neighbor as yourself. Seek the good of your neighbor. Seek his, his or her advantage. Um, Paul, having ruled out going to pagan temples, having ruled out eating meals in, a, in an idol temple, um, now addresses the other two locations where you could eat food sacrificed to idols. One is in your own home. And intriguingly, Paul's answer to some who have abused their freedom in Christ is not to clamp down on their, their freedom. So he says, verse 25 and 26, eat anything 
sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Be free. Eat anything. And then I suggest, um, uh, with a pen or a marker, or just in your minds, you put a little bracket round verse 27 through to the beginning of, of verse uh, 29. Um, biblical passages were not constructed in, in quite the same way we would construct them. And I think what follows that little section that I'm suggesting you put in brackets still refers to what you eat in your own home when he says, why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. So he's saying within the church you can have different views on some issues, like the food bought in the marketplace, which may well have been first sacrificed to an idol. But Paul's point, I think, is you are not a participant in that sacrificial act of worship. So if you, through your knowledge, are convinced that an idol is nothing, and if your faith is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and all that we receive is a gift from God and should be received with thanksgiving, then you are free to eat. But there may be others in the church. Um, sorry, am I going over time? No. Um, there may be others in the church. A strict people who've got, got a, um, a stronger sense of conscience or a more sensitive sense of conscience who would not touch food that had any link to idolatrous worship whatsoever. And Paul is simply saying there are different views, but in your own home, you do not, do not need to be bound by the consciences of others, only by your own conscience before the Lord. And they must not denounce you for your freedom there. Um, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I judged, denounced, because of something I thank God for? So that's, that's in your home. But then Paul goes on to the, the, the situation where an unbelieving friend invites you round for a meal to their table. Now, um, we can't be certain um, of, of this, but it seems to me very likely um, that somebody who's got room to invite people round to their home for a meal lives in a reasonable-sized property. Um, and in those days, um, dinner parties would have been semi-private, semi-public affairs. You may think of Luke chapter 7, where Jesus has been invited to a meal by a leading Pharisee, and a street woman wanders in and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, because it was a, a semi-public affair. Um, now, Paul says, in effect, in that situation, verse 27 Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. You are not, because of your values, to be a deliberately awkward guest. You are not to be, in your place of work, a deliberate, awkward customer. 
Um, you are, says Paul, to try to please everybody in every way. Verse 33. But if someone deliberately points out to you this was sacrificed to an idol, then for their sake, not for your sake, but for their sake, you should refuse to eat um, the meat. So the principle is, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and you can receive that with thanksgiving, but you are to act not for your own good, but for the good of others. And you are not to say, everything is permissible for me. My freedom trumps everything. The principle is, whether you eat or drink, verse 31, um, whatever you do, you are to do it for the glory of God. But you are not, verse 32, to try to cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. You are trying to please everybody in every way, even as I do. I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, says Paul, so that they may be saved. And that is the way of life modeled for us in Jesus Christ, who did not come seeking his own good, his own advantage, but the advantage of salvation of many, of our salvation, for which he abandoned his rights, gave up his freedom, and went to the cross. And it was very particularly modeled for them by Paul, who, as we saw when Rob was preaching on, uh, on chapter 9, deliberately gave up his rights to have a believing wife who traveled around with him, who deliberately gave up his rights of um, earning a living from his gospel ministry, who was willing to become all things to all men that they might become, that they might be saved. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To the Greeks, like a Greek. To the weak, like somebody who is weak. I, I do all things for all men that some might be saved. So for the strong in Corinth... No one should seek their own advantage, but the advantage of others. And once again, I don't, you've been going through 1 Corinthians for a long time, haven't you? Basically, what, what is the letter doing? It's unpacking the wisdom of the cross. So back, right back at the beginning, Paul says the wisdom of God is not seen in Greek preoccupation with intellectual philosophical reasoning and it's not seen in Jewish preoccupation with miraculous signs and wonders it's seen in the cross of Jesus Christ and in the church of Jesus Christ and he reminds them how um, when God chose them he did not call many who were influential or wise, or of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things 
of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We want to say, don't look at me, look at Christ. Don't look at the church, look at Christ. Um, but Paul is saying, look at me. And he wants them to be able to say, look at us. This is the wisdom of Christ lived out. And if I've understood the context correctly, the, uh, the greatest pressure on the church to compromise with idolatry is from those few who were regarded as wise and of noble birth and as influential and want to remain in the world, connected, influential, esteemed in the world. But God has chosen the weak and the foolish and the lowly and the things are not. And he's calling them to be faithful, to live by the wisdom of God found in Christ the wisdom of the cross that seeks not your own advantage, but the good of others that they might be saved. So I'm winding up. I want you to notice what Paul is doing here. Back in, back in chapter 3, he said, I could not address you as mature for your mere infants in Christ. But what he's doing here is he's, he's training children um, or to, in the wisdom of God, so that they might no longer be children. So he doesn't simply give them rules. Children need rules. But instead, he's, he's training them to have the mind of Christ so that they can think in, in a multitude of situations. How am I to live for the glory of God? How am I to live for the good of others? And... That's why I say this is so valuable for us in a very different situation, but a world still steeped with a different sort of idolatry, um, the idolatry of freedom and the idolatry of self-worship that says I can be whatever I want to be and you must look at me like that. So we, have, we, we may face all sorts of questions. So, what am I to do with my mobile phone network provider who sent me a text yesterday saying that they are funding the LGBTQ community um, to this extent? Um, can I work for a company if they endorse this idolatrous worship of freedom and of the self? What if that company is a media company that actively promotes this idolatry? Can I support a campaign for justice that is organized by a movement that in other areas promotes unchristian values? What if I was invited through my participation in their demonstrations to join their local branch? Where do I draw the line? I am not going to answer those, but Paul sets out Two principles for us. Flee from idolatry and follow Christ. 
follow me as I follow Christ. Each of us should live not for his own good, but for the good of others. May, may Paul's outworking of this issue that face them help us to work out how we are to do all for the glory of God and how we are to seek not our own good, but the good of others. And may the Lord so train us in his wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, that we can actually say to people, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And may the Lord so exhibit his jealous love for his church, his bride, that we can again say, if you want to see Christ, look at the church. May God have mercy upon us and give us his grace. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.